Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. This week, we'll open with Unearth's world premiere news and submissions for a new Glenn Stearns project in Erie. Jesse and Mike break down the Safe Way Forward, which is the film industry's joint document on returning safely to work. Then we'll catch up with theater maker and storyteller Jessica Annunziata and share our thoughts on the feature film The Watermelon Woman, available for a limited time for free on the Criterion channel. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming for the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania. I'm Erica Berlin, the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania. I'm Jesse Olszewski, filmmaker and project coordinator at the Greater Erie Film Office. I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. (laughs) That still cracks me up. Let's get right into it. Unearth, by now, if you're listening to this podcast, you should know Unearth. Unearth, which was produced here in Northwestern Pennsylvania, 95% funded by regional private investors and a proud recipient of a Pennsylvania film tax credit, will have its world premiere at the Fantasia International Film Festival in Canada later this summer. Fantasia is the biggest genre film festival in North America, drawing over 100,000 attendees each year, including regular appearances from the likes of Quentin Tarantino and Guillermo del Toro. We'll have more on the film in the coming months, but this is a great start. John, this is so exciting. I mean... What are you thinking? I'm thinking uh, about time. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Dorota and I both said that, um, you know, when we found out the news, it felt like day day zero again. You know, it's just the next phase in the long story of Unearth. And it's really exciting. Uh, We got a ton of coverage. The the name's out there. The film's out there. And um, yeah, now it feels like the work begins again so stay mm-hmm. and um we'll we'll see how it goes it's funny that we were talking about the nantucket film festival and the online virtual festival experience just a couple weeks ago and now i will be living that firsthand so i will share the experience that's awesome well we're all so excited and I'm glad that we're able to watch it virtually because that's going to open it up to a lot more people, John, the the premiere, because it's usually in person in Montreal, Canada, correct? Yeah, actually only people with Canadian IP addresses will be able to watch. So sorry, you guys will have to wait. Oh, no. I but there will be more that. screenings and more festivals. This is just okay. the beginning. John, just, just tell me when I better. can watch it. Just <laughs> tell know. me. When I can watch it. Soon. Another reason that Canada is really cool. Socialized medicine and the Fantasia Film Fest. (laughs) Like I said, those two things. All of the (laughs) casting crew, like, you know, you work so hard for it. And I don't want everyone to watch it the first time on a cell phone. I'm sorry. So Mm. we will we will find a way. It will work out. In these challenging times, as America returns to work, TV's undercover billionaire and eerie business owner Glenn Stearns returns to town on a new mission, help struggling small business owners realize their potential and increase growth and profitability. Glenn is bringing his time, talent, arsenal of ideas, and business know-how to help you. Don't miss out on this opportunity to work with one of America's most respected and successful entrepreneurs. Join Glenn to develop innovative business strategies and learn the secrets of his success while gaining valuable insight and practical lessons that will take your business to the next level. Why are we telling you this? If you are an interested Erie business owner, please let us know through the Greater Erie Film Office Facebook page. We will be supporting the Undercover Billionaire and Glenn's production, and we are looking for the business that Glenn is going to work with. So please contact us at the Greater Erie Film Office through our Facebook page. Sweet. And I'm sure more to come on this story. Absolutely. Jesse and Mike, what do you guys got? 
What we have this week is a joint report of the DGA, SAG-AFTRA, and then IATSE, and Teamsters committees for COVID-19 safety guidelines. So it's all the big unions, all the big organizations that are involved for big film productions. And they've released a report on what they are saying film production could look like in the wake of COVID-19. And it's pretty dense. It's 37 pages, but um, the big takeaways are that to continue to handle production, the key to doing it safely is to have constant testing happening. All the tests they ran said that testing needs to happen all the time. And on top of that, they came up with smaller stipulations on from everything from pre-production to post-production on how to run the set, how are crews and departments going to do their work safely. And from what it looks like, it's a process that will severely cost a lot more to have to do this constant testing and then make sure that everything is being done safely. I want to start by saying this, uh, having read the document uh, and necessarily light reading, but this is clearly written by and thought out by some very, very smart, well-informed people. And I believe that they have the process and the right intent in mind. I'll channel our friend Stuart Nash and I'll say from from a union standpoint, this is exactly what you want to see, that they're taking the virus seriously and that they are putting structure to how to operate and how to work yet for film crews. Now I will put on the hat of, you know, Mike Berlin, who works more on uh, independent and freelance market. This is nearly impossible for the independent filmmaker. Jesse, I mean, and they're not wrong. They're not wrong about any of this, but it's like, You've just ballooned a independent film's budget, maybe by double. Yeah, I mean, can you guys speak to a couple specifics as far as what they are suggesting outside of just more testing? Okay, so let's get right into it. Uh, one of the examples is that go into pretty significant detail about this, about your video village and how that's going to go from what they call zone A to zone B. And there is going to have to be stipulations about who's running the cable because Again, we're still finding things out about the virus as we go, but who's running the cable? Uh, wireless transmission, because wireless transmission, every, anybody who's been on a set, like how many times does that does the signal drop? So who can come into zone A? Who can come into zone B? There's a whole five pages about what to do and then sidesteps on how to handle a video village. And then on top of it, one of the things I had to laugh at comically was they advise productions to not have location moves or company moves in a single day. They just tell you to straight up avoid it, which is that like, it makes sense. I understand why they are saying that. You know, having all of us having worked on films before, particularly when you're working on something where you've got to go from location to location to location because you're trying to get it in in a set amount of time before, because you're racing the budget you have for the film. That is unrealistic unless you've set the entire film in one location yeah and some some additional specifics are just that anything that doesn't have to be done in person you know gets done digitally from like casting there you know there'd be no auditions it's only video casting but all the way through production and then uh kind of clustering of departments so you know, your grip and lighting team will only interact with the grip and lighting team, and then they will have to remove themselves from the working area and kind of stay in their own little bubble. And this would happen for all the departments so that um, it's just minimizing the the contact between uh, the departments. There's going to be a lot of there's going to be films with a lot of soft ambient lighting because you're just not going to be able to <laughs> set lighting cues. Practical lighting. <laughs> right. Yeah, the having worked on bigger sets and smaller sets, um, this this kind of plan it really only seems possible by the biggest of the big production studios. You know, the Paramounts. Uh, the those are the kinds of uh, productions that are going to be able to to implement all of this. I I don't know for non union shoots if that means people are going to cut corners or if they're just going to try and find a, a safe middle ground, but it's, uh, it's, it's an entirely new way of running a set. And that it even calls for an entirely new department, which is like your health and safety department where there's 
a health and safety officer who kind of works with the assistant director, but they are strictly in charge of setting up the zones for everyone, setting up signage, handing out PPE to everyone, making sure things are wiped down like every two hours. Like it's just crazy, all, all of the extra precautions that have to be taken now. I think this is a win for the studios, by the way, because you're going to have uh, Warner Brothers lots, DreamWorks lots. If you, have, if you are one of the traditional sort of universal old school Hollywood studio houses where you have these massive lots, this is a win for you because yeah. you, are more, you are more aligned and you are more set up to operate function this way. Yeah, there's um, no one else that can accommodate all this. Correct. Yes. And, and, and again, I, I don't begrudge. It, it, it really is written with the, we are dealing with some unprecedented stuff and it is written and conceived very well. It's alarming if you're an independent filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, the concern is protect. I mean, basically protecting the actors, right? They're the ones that are most come in contact with each other and other people in the crew the most. So, yeah, I, I mean, I understand the concern and obviously SAG, which is the Screen Actors Guild, were involved in the creation of this document. That, to me, seems to be the, the most... Well, it's all the unions. So all the unions are are looking after who they represent, which includes the crews, because, you know, you have like the IATSE and the Teamsters. So they all have to come together or all sign off on each other's uh, rules and stipulations so that everyone is protected to the best of their ability. I think that they say pretty blatantly that sets are going to work almost like how you do, how they operate when there is a scene of sensitive nature being shot. So you're just going to, they, they call it close set almost from the jump. And on the onset of the form, it, it did say that um, this would only be possible when testing is like, there's no cost anymore. And they, the way they worded it, they said that it's coming. Like we're going to get to the point where they can do like instant tests or, or tests very quickly. And that's kind of the crux of this whole document is to make sure if you get tested and anyone who is shown to be infected, that they are just removed from the set. Yeah. Uh, in the zone A, which is the actual set set, you're mm-hmm. to be tested uh, three times a week minimum, I believe. And then if you are part of zone B, then you are to be tested once or twice a week minimum. Mm-hmm. So that they, they have all sorts of stipulations for that. Just to give uh, our listeners some perspective, Unearth had an 18-day shoot, and we really could have used um, 24, 24 days. Um, you know, every film says that they never have enough time, um, but studio films do move much slower. I mean, they're much more massive than smaller independent films. So what Mike and... Jesse, you're speaking to is um, with independent films, you are strapped for cash, strapped for time. And if a couple of things go off the rails, they can be extremely detrimental. And you're always, you know, problem solving and troubleshooting and adapting on the fly. That's just the nature of filmmaking. Um, But, you know, I can imagine a situation where somebody that's in group A, test positive and uh, you know say you're halfway through your two or three week shoot and all of a sudden all of your principal actors and crew your directors your you know assistant director um, are exposed and all of a sudden you can't film for potentially 10 days or two yeah. or something like I can that. I can foresee um when I when I worked in uh, pre-production, uh, budgets always have something called incidentals, which are just things that come up last minute. And I can foresee not just in the costs, but also in time, uh, shoot schedules will now like have extra days allotted specifically for the setbacks. Like we'll tag on an extra week, and then that'll be budgeted in just in case they have to delay or go on hold for a week it'll be crazy and and to speak to and to sort of uh piggyback off of what you're saying jesse that person who is being hired as sort of your uh health specialist by the way i could definitely see that becoming a a role that becomes a permanent fixture moving forward on film steps that person has the green light 
to shut down the production if uh, outbreak starts to happen. So if you had an outbreak in zone A, that's going to shut down your production. By the way that I read it on the document. Pre-COVID, I think the only people who could really do that would be like a safety officer. They could they could stop something if something was unsafe. Or then the producer who has control of the purse strings, they could come in and say, nope, it's, it's done. But now uh, we have another another person that has all the power. Yeah. So this is, uh, they said, this is a, a, you know, this is the first draft of what will be a fluid document, but we thought it was important to bring up and we'll definitely be monitoring the situation. And as Los Angeles uh, opens for production and, you know, we hear more stories about independent filmmakers, we will check in with this story for sure. Right guys. And I think that's the other thing too. We'll, we'll, everyone will be taking the lead from Hollywood and the other big film cities and it'll kind of branch out from there. So it's kind of too soon to tell right now. All right, so our guest today is Jessica Annunziata. She is a theater maker. She is a storyteller extraordinaire. (laughs) Jessica, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me today. I'm doing well, thanks. How about you guys? Really good. Hanging in. (laughs) Well said. So, um, Jessica, I haven't known you for too long. So um, are you originally from Erie? Did you move here from somewhere else? Give give me some background on you. I Jessica's am story. originally from Erie. And Fantastic. I've lived here off and on since college. New York City here. So for college, you went to New York? I did. I was um, at Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, and I studied through the Stella Adler Studio of Acting through them. That's some serious stuff. So take us up to that moment. Um, When you were in grade school, did you always, you know, were you a a theater person? Um, Did you do any acting or performance arts while you were in grade school? I always wanted to. There wasn't a lot of opportunities before high school if you're not a singer, which, you know, I've improved, but still I wouldn't say I was. So I remember watching like Barney as a real little kid and thinking of the kids on that show, like I could do that better, which I guess also says a lot about this ego, but I guess I always knew I wanted to do it, but the opportunities, I didn't always see how they were there. Which school did you go to? I went to St. Luke and then to Mercier's Prep with Jesse. Yeah. Jesse. We acted on stage together many times. Many times. Let's hear a little bit about that. <laughs> I know we did. Uh, okay. <laughs> now, you know? now, I'm bl- now I'm blanking on the shows that we did. <laughs> the first ones would have been Bye Bye Birdie, which was the first like oh, full yeah. production ever in. And then Neil Simon's worst Broadway debuted play ever, Fools. Oh, uh, I, I loved that. I thought play. it was a great show, but it only ran like 60 shows on Broadway or something. Oh, like yeah, that. yeah. How many shows did you guys do in school? Well, <laughs> not 60 shows. No, like six or three. seven. The, the school did three shows a year. I thought you meant how many times did we perform Fools? Yeah, oh. I was just being a smart ass. <laughs> yeah, definitely like six. One tenth of the time yeah. it was performed on Broadway, so not bad. So you went to an awesome school and you moved to the big city from Erie. Uh, how was that? Were you, ex- obviously you're excited. You you chose to go to Tisch. Tell me a little bit about making that decision and, you know, how life was out there. Yeah, well, I knew I wanted to end up in New York or Chicago for school to be out there. That was actually the only, I only applied to four programs, but that was the only one I got into. And I think part of the reason was they asked for two contemporary pieces and some of their essay questions were like more, let me answer that. And also they did an interview portion. Oh, okay. So what kind of, do you remember what essay questions they asked? I'm just curious what types of questions are asked. You don't have to give (laughs) the answers, but. (laughs) So their, their unique question was, okay, so there's going to be a talent show. What song would you sing? And I've already told you all, I don't feel like I'm much of a singer. So 
a high school theater trip to New York that Jesse and I went on. We saw 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And my range fits pretty similar to a tenor. So I love the song, My Unfortunate Erection. And I said, I would sing that because we all know what it's like to have something happen to us that we feel like we're not at our best. And yeah, I wrote something like that. <laughs> I think that answer was a big deal in me getting in, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that that told them something, right? Definitely. <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, so you get into Tish, you go to, uh, did you stay in Manhattan or? For most of the time I was in school, I did dorms the first two years had an apartment the first semester of my junior year, studied abroad in South Africa then, and then finished up living in Brooklyn. Okay, so let's go to uh, South Africa and then we'll come back to New York. So how did that happen and how was that experience? Why did you go to South Africa? So Tish had two study abroad programs for the acting program. You could do audition to go to RADA in London or you could go to Johannesburg and study clowning and improv and comedy and devise theater, um, Bawal, which is, they call it applied theater. And I figured I'd already been to England. I knew what that was about. It'd be better to experience something that I had no concept of. And it was amazing. I mean, if you're ever looking for some place to go when quarantine's over, I highly recommend South Africa. Every landscape you can think of, I felt like people were very warm. I feel like art is very urgent there. Um, performers are in their bodies, I feel, in a way that we aren't so much here. We must go. You felt um, a definite performance di difference as far as the, um, uh, I guess, the methodology or the style? I think there was a, there is a difference in style. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that American culture is so omnipresent that definitely there's plenty of similarities and plenty of overlap, but I remember being moved by that performers would use their whole voices and their whole bodies, no matter how, no matter what the size of the space was. And I think that has a power that we don't always employ. Mm -hmm. And you were in Joburg, you said, most of the I time? I was, yeah. Awesome. I just, uh, it's totally unrelated, but I just rewatched District 9. Oh, um, that's cool. And there's quite a... Um, there's two worlds there for sure. You know, there's the city and then there's, you know, outside the city, which is yeah, extreme exactly. poverty. And did you, um, did you experience any, any of that, the inequality situation there? Oh yeah, definitely. It's funny that you asked that because somebody just asked me if when I was there, did I get to go to people's homes? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I was at a lot of homes of wealthy white people. Um, but I had also had the opportunity, the privilege, I should say, of doing some of that applied theater work in um, the Soweto Cliptown Township. So it's what you're talking about, you know, those, those small homes made with the corrugated tin roofs and stuff like that. And while I question how beneficial that was to the people in that community, that these folks learning about this applied theater come in and work with them on workshops was hmm. them it was definitely uh, an incredible experience for me even if I still am like oh did we help did we do anything like what kind of uh workshops did you do with those yeah. communities um so Boal and his applied theater work is is most easily described as rehearsing for real life so um Augusto Boal uh, was from Brazil and he developed this technique in the 70s during the the sectarian violence in Brazil. It was supposed to be like you go into a population and you say, well you don't say, but the language that you use when you're talking about the theory is what are the oppressions happening within this group. And so you find a way to get them to talk about that. So we started with what are some things that make you happy? And actually, in the group that I was working with, they said to me, you know, we think it would be easier for us to talk about things that make us sad. And I will wow. never forget that. But that was the conversation we were ultimately getting to. So then they told me about things in their lives that made me sad or made them sad. And then we wrote a list and we said, OK, well, which things do you want to talk about? And then you eventually write a scene where the oppression happens and then you ask 
everybody else in the group, how could that have gone differently? And so then you either, you'll start with having the actors act out um, a different situation. Then you start to let audience members step in and say, okay, do it your way. And you're on the lookout for magical solutions that wouldn't really work, but you're also hopefully finding things that help people find a new way to navigate these challenges. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I know you said, you know, you you weren't sure if it helped them, but um and obviously you can't know, you know, how it how it's affecting someone, but maybe um, you know, just having someone there and care and give them an opportunity to communicate and participate and express themselves. I mean, sounds, you know, as an artist, as artists, it sounds like, you no, know, that that can be very helpful and maybe therapeutic for for people as well. That's interesting what you said about them, you know, how they answered your question. That's telling, right? Yeah. And we were working with kids like five to 14. And then we actually had some younger kids show up and some older kids show up and we're like, oh, like, we can't say no. <laughs> um, and if nothing else, John, to what you're saying, but if nothing else, they got to laugh at uh, myself, this white <laughs> woman, um, this woman from Zimbabwe and this woman from Tanzania trying to dance and they thought it was hilarious that they could dance much better than we could. So I'm <laughs> glad that I could provide some comedy. There you go. Wow, what an experience. How how long were you there again? Uh, for about six months and I've been back one time since then. I'm really That's incredible. Overdue. That's great. What year were you in your studies when you went there? It was February 2011 to July. All right. I so you come back from that experience. Um, what did that experience teach you, do you think? Wow. Well, the world is so big and people live so many different ways, for starters. I talked about some of the powers that performance has that we don't explore too much here. I would also say, I totally lost it. I don't know what I was going to say. Uh, that uh, Oh, uh, how similar, actually, you know, a lot of the problems they have in South Africa are so similar to ours, and especially... In this particular moment, I feel like it's worth noting that, you know, racial inequities are still huge in South Africa. They're still huge here. I remember thinking, oh, maybe we can learn something from them, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Council. But then there's a lot of critics of that now. Like, what did it actually do? I mean, sure, it was this moment of closure and that the white folks who perpetrated all that violence got to say they were sorry, but... Sometimes I wonder who are apologies really for? I mean, I still think that was a beautiful thing, but it's evident that we need more action than that. Though yeah. that might not be a bad place to start. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned that you had went to London. I mean, I think, you know, travel and seeing other communities and getting other perspectives is really important, not just for artists, but for all humans. <laughs> um, so which, which place, I'm curious which places you have, you have traveled two besides yeah it's actually pretty limited i mean oh, okay <laughs> canada okay. england south africa we drove to lesotho one night and skipped class the next day cool yeah i was just curious amsterdam i went to the netherlands all right well you've been to some cool places then yeah so when you were in uh new york i know that you have done acting because i i found one of your short films it was a black and white short film that you were in you were like um this is a long time ago. This is like um, back in the unearth auditioning days. Was I like a sick person in an apartment answering the door? Yeah, there was I think so. Noir detective. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. That was a grad <laughs> student at Columbia's student film. Okay. Well, it's on, I think it was on Vimeo or something. I found it. So <laughs> <laughs> the things that are out there. Yeah, no. We all have those films that we prefer no one ever see. I thought you were good. I thought it was. There's a one I did in high school um, locally that if nobody ever found it, that would be fine. So I'm sorry. I just confirmed that it exists. So. <laughs> and now we'll find it. Probably. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so when you were at Tish, you know, what were your areas of focus and what did you, um, did that change over time? Did you go in kind of thinking you were going to be one, you know, working one type of job and then you ended up finding interest in others? How was that process? Mm, that's a, that's a beautifully structured question. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, Is that sarcasm? I, no, seriously. <laughs> okay. So I, from the time that I interviewed to starting school and finishing up, I studied at 
Stella Adler studio the whole time, except when I was in South Africa. And then I graduated a semester early, but around that, so that's a lot of studying, you know, like classic American texts. It's studying a lot of classical texts. You know, Marlon Brando was her most famous student. Mark Ruffalo was a student. Actually, From Johannesburg was the first experience I'd had with devised work. So, you know, people coming together in a group and collaboratively creating something original. And that experience, actually, we ended up doing like this carnival of mini pieces that folks would just walk around and take in at their leisure about sex, which was the director's idea. And I thought that was incredibly boring. Mm. I mean, at this moment, I would change my mind about that a little bit because I really appreciate like the work of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and stuff like that. And I recognize that sex is central to that work. And I appreciate now in my story, it's much more central. But at the time I was like, that's so boring. This experience has been so weird. If I never do device theater again, like that's fine. And then the only jobs, the only, almost all of the paying jobs I had out of school (laughs) were devised theater. So it was kind of a, whether I liked it or not, this is what I was getting hired to do. These jobs that you're referring to, this was in New York as well? Yes. Like after graduation or during? Uh, After. Okay. So I guess maybe you learned to appreciate that more or you learned you need to get the hell out of that kind of situation? (laughs) You know, a little bit of both at times, but the first job that I had was incredible. I worked with this great group called the Deconstructive Theater Project, riffing on the Orpheus myth and the neuroscience of memory. We ended up creating a piece where we were staging a film live. So we'd have these stations where we were, where we were setting up these close-up shots and there were folks doing Foley and folks doing voiceover. And then behind us was a screen where we were projecting what the cameras were seeing. Uh-huh. Um, I like this. It was so awesome. And at the time, man, this speaks to like already how much technology has changed. But at the time, the only way we could figure out to run this was through this now janky program called Isadora. And you couldn't record, you were projecting. You could either record or you could project it. You couldn't do both, which actually worked better for the things that we were exploring with memory because, you know, with memory, every time you recall it, um, you're telling yourself that story. And so the, what you're recalling becomes further and further from the truth of what actually happened so that it couldn't last just like theater was kind of perfect. Although now, of course, it probably could. I like that idea a lot, though. Have you ever thought about um, recreating something like that here? I'm just, it sounds like it would be difficult to pull off. It had a ton of props and (laughs) a ton of people involved with it. It wasn't my creative baby, so I don't know that I would feel like I could, though we're not the only company to ever do something like that. We ended up hearing of a couple others who were working on similar things. Yeah, what was the size of the the group? I'm just curious. I feel like we had like, yeah, maybe like 10 performers because we also had live music and we had the stage manager, you know, we had two cameras. So saying one to switch between one camera and the other so that we didn't have any lulls between shots. Mm-hmm. Um, as performers... All of us might be the hands or the feet or whatever of Eurydice and Orpheus. I was Eurydice's eyes one time, which was really silly because the woman who was Eurydice's face had blue eyes and I do not. You know, you make it work. Who's available? Who's not holding a camera or a prop or a bounce thing or a piece of like cardboard with wallpaper on it? Yeah, that was a really awesome thing. So you meet all these cool people in New York learn all these skills and then at some point you then did you come back to Erie from New York or was there a detour in there there wasn't a detour I did I um so I did graduate a semester early which I feel like cut me out of some of the business stuff that I didn't get to learn about everybody else who stayed on got to meet folks at audible and some a number of my classmates recorded stuff with audible then um so I missed those opportunities and I felt like everybody else knew how to do it everybody else knew how to find the day job that worked with being able to audition I was like why am I the only one who doesn't know how this works why am I so dumb like how did I spend all this time and I don't know how to do this and I still a little bit have that hang up so I'm learning that that hang up's about me and not about other I had this terrible bartending job I just was like I just I can't right now my roommate that I had been living with also said you know I can't be in New York right now Hmm. so that's when I went back to South Africa to visit and I ended up doing a show at the Cleveland Public Theater which was a 
another cool professional experience that I got to have. I've actually had great experiences with work the times that I've come home from New York. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm learning a lot. I don't know, Jesse, if you you know these things already or you're... This Not is at this level of detail. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just curious, um, like your classmates at Tisch, I'm sure the whole experience, you come out of it knowing so much more than you you did going in but was there a common like goal that all these students wanted to get out of the program did they all like want to go on to perform live theater or film or anything like that yeah I don't think there probably was a common goal I think there was probably a lot of individual goals maybe with similarities but you know even in that NYU's program operates that you pick like one of eight studios. Well, in your interview, you talk about one of eight studios and then they place you. And so, you know, in addition to some classic techniques like Adler and Strasberg and Meisner, there were the experimental theater wing, which was of course much more about developing an individual's voice and devising theater. So even from the get-go, I think it was pretty diverse in terms of what people were hoping to achieve. And then of course, the more you learn, the way you're treated in these spaces, you figure out more about what you want to do from there. There was also, yeah. once you were an upperclassman, a television studio that you could study at. I wish I had done a little bit of that. Although we did have an acting for camera class. I think there's probably still some more technique I could have picked up. And would you recommend a program like that for aspiring young actors? I would. I would encourage them to understand what loans mean. Because <laughs> I didn't. Um, and I would encourage them to really take advantage of everything at the institution, like in terms of space, because you can just have space to rehearse and develop stuff. And I never did any of that. I let them at my studio scare me into not auditioning for Tish shows because they said, you're here, this is your focus, Adler's your focus. I mean, not to, Adler was a wonderful place, not to speak badly of it, but I wish I'd gotten more involved with Tish and I wish I had done more of the networking. And I know in one of your recent episodes, you talked about, we don't really learn how to do that. Yeah, I could do that better myself. So yeah, to, if you're going to do a program like this, if you're going to make that massive investment, because they tend to be massive investments, be ready to really make the most of it. And don't let your schooling get in the way of your education. nice nice i don't know when when i was in college and much younger i i I think i needed to go through some more life experience really to be mature enough and ready enough to do things seriously i mean i I, you know it's so tough right you know i would have been if i could yeah if i could do it all over again i would be much more involved and I would have done more arts stuff you know like but that's how it works out we can't regret you went Jessica you went to New York you went to South Africa and then you came back to Erie and um, you've been involved in a lot of diverse experiences here as well I mean I've seen you at Daft Mark which is really cool what are some other programs that you've been involved in here in Erie Yeah, so um, I've worked with Drama Shop a number of times, both on stage and as a director. I have worked as a stagecraft coach for local entrepreneurs through Techcelerator, thanks to Ben Franklin. I've worked with Kelly Armour as a storytelling coach former refugees. That was awesome. That was another experience where I was like, I don't know that I'm really needed in this space, but if I can listen to your story and validate you and say, hey, why don't you repeat that detail? Because it's like really powerful and it'll bring your audience back in in a different way, you know, but it was it was an honor to get to be there and to hear these stories and how can we make, how can we make it better? But like, how can we enhance what you were already telling me? Yeah. I mean, it's sounding like, um, you know, that's a recurring thread for sure. And your experience, that's interesting. Enhancing and giving voice and, you know, kind of coaching people, I would imagine through telling their stories. That's important work. That's good stuff. Thanks. What about story time in covid Tell, well, tell us about what the life of an artist during a pandemic. Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously, I, like everybody else, wish this wasn't going on. But since it is, I didn't mind having all the time that you bring up story time in particular. I had been talking to Daffy of Daffmark, and she had said to me, 
I'm trying to think of what I can do to help people in this moment. What can I do to help people? And I thought, oh yeah, that's a good thing to be thinking about. What could I do that might be helpful at this moment? And I'm at that age where I have a number of friends who have children. And I thought, oh my gosh, probably if you could even have 10 minutes where you didn't have to be hovering, what are your kids doing? And it's not a TV show. Uh, I guess I could read stories. That's something, you know, cold read, being silly. That's something I can do. What feedback have you gotten from that project? I've actually had more feedback from adults, which is, I mean, not that kids would tell me that they were liking it, but adults telling me that they enjoyed it and that it was this wholesome couple moments of escape from everything that was happening, which was really cool. I have been slacking recently and haven't done one in a minute. I was going to do one right before this, but then I was like, man, I'm out of practice. Like, I don't know what to say in my opening spiel and... (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, not that I. I would imagine that you'd have a cult following of ten-year-olds now on Facebook or something. One day, right? <laughs> we can. We can all aspire. Um, yeah, the adults. Well, maybe you're um, giving people some some peace. Maybe they can uh, just relax and listen for a minute, reconnect yeah. with their with their childhood. But what about, uh, I just saw recently through Erie Arts and Culture that you're doing Give Rise to Your Feelings. Tell yeah. us about that. So my good friend, Kristen Weeks, was working at Erie Arts and Culture, and they had had this idea for this 30-day journaling project. And they reached out to me to ask if I would make uh, short little videos of prompts that Kristen had written. And I said, Sure, absolutely. She knew I was doing the story time thing and that was kind of what made her think of me, which is awesome. You know, I didn't really think of that as being anything that was going to lead to anything. Like it just seemed like something to do. It helped me have a regular schedule for a while. And then I got a job from it. It It's amazing. You just never know. You never know where these things are going to come from. There you go. I think that's a good lesson for artists just in general, right? Um, You had time. Uh, No one, no one was working and there's a pandemic and you start doing story time and look what happened it's really cool um do you have so i've enjoyed as have i think all of us for sure at the film society enjoyed some of plays that you've directed at drama shop do you have anything kind of on your wish list or that you're working on or hoping for in the future that you want to share Well, I realize I probably haven't told any of you guys yet, but I'm actually going to be moving to Detroit in August to get paid to get an MFA. Whoa, are you serious? Yeah. Congratulations. That's huge. Look at Jesse's face. (laughs) Get paid and a degree. Tell us more. So yeah, so I auditioned and I knew Uh, going in that I was going to need a program that had full tuition and ideally a stipend. And I got a couple of offers like that. And the program at Wayne State in Detroit sounded like the most in line with things that I want to work on. Such as? Of course, being Detroit, being a city that has a large Black population, have um, a Black theater class, and they have an all-Black theater troupe. And that stuff was of interest to me because I I need to learn about that. I mean, as you were saying, I've talked a few times in my experiences about making sure voices that we don't always hear from are included. And so to learn alongside people who are working on that stuff um, is important to me. I know there's going to be some serious movement training because their movement callback was no joke. And I was like, Pilates is not enough. I need to start doing cardio. Um, Wow. (laughs) Uh, They have a really heavy performance emphasis. I guess that was probably the main thing that made me pick it because your assistantship is not for teaching. It's not for TAing. It's not for any of that stuff. It's for performing. They're hiring you as a company member. At Stella Adler, they always talked about, oh, actors these days, it's so unfortunate. You don't get to be part of the company system because it's so valuable. You don't perform a show if you don't have the company for it. You have to have the company and and you learn and you do these shows and repertoire and oh, it's wonderful. And, and now I'm going to get to have that experience. Yeah. Congratulations. Jessica, thank you so much for sharing with us. I think we will pull back in Mike and Erica so that we can talk about our film of the week, The Watermelon Woman. All right, gang. So this week, our movie was The Watermelon Woman. We wanted to sort of find a film that was on 
one hand sort of that recognize the African-American community and at the same time not forget that it's LGBTQ uh, month and uh, so we found one and it is called The Watermelon Woman directed, written and starring one Cheryl Dunye and it is centered it felt very and I'll be curious to see your guys' impression of it it felt a lot like it definitely has that mid-90s feel to it on some oh, yeah. level <laughs> and <laughs> But at the same, I, I kept on thinking of film clerks a little bit, uh, so just the way that it's sort of told in this episodic fashion. And in the film, she, Cheryl, plays a character named Cheryl, and she is an aspiring filmmaker who works at a, a rental video store, and she is navigating being a young lesbian woman in Philadelphia uh, in the mid-90s, what, what that all means. And at the same time, she is doing a documentary historical research project about a woman who she she's obsessed with old films, and she's looking for a woman who is simply credited as the watermelon woman. So, opening it up to the panel, what did you guys think? Uh, we went with something that was a little bit, a little bit more light and uh, sort of comedic. Jessica, you want to go first? I loved it. I thought it was so interesting, and it was a great. As much as it feels very mid-90s, it also feels very current that these ideas of representation of people of color and the LGBTQ community is still very much at the forefront of our discussion in cinematic storytelling. And then also that it that it has that lo-fi quality. I feel like there's something really current about that, that we're filming movies entirely on iPhones now and the discussion of that black actresses weren't even credited and then that this one was as the watermelon woman was was fascinating you know what i really love and you're right there's a soul to this film that could have been taken and transplanted to 2016 because at no point did i feel like that there was a struggle behind the sexuality of the characters and so it, it is just part of who they are and it's something that even with films nowadays that are that are so revered something like carol there it's you know you're getting the struggle and sort of the oppression of society not in this film in this film it's life is sort of it's much more celebratory and it's i don't know there's there's a there's an element to me that while i was watching i was like this is kind of in a very odd way a beautiful american film uh, about the ideals of what this country at times should be. It did, for being such an old film, it did feel fresh in that way due to, um, you know, the, the frankness of the sexuality, for sure. That was probably, I, I would say, the way that they handled those aspects, I think, were the strongest part um, of the film for me. It did, you know, to be... A bit of a critic. Um, I felt that Cher Cheryl's acting was pretty atrocious. There was a lot of, uh, very over, over God, coming off the top rope. Okay, <laughs> Cheryl, the like I don't know. There could almost be a drinking game for every time she gives a uh, exaggerated eye roll on camera, which is really distracting to me. I don't know. I it was an, int an interesting mixture of styles. You know, like you had the documentary feel, you know, which was very grainy, like home video feeling, and then there was also when it was her and her friends, like her real life. You know, it felt a little more produced, but still, you know, lo-fi, as Jessica said. And then the one that really stood out to me that was like the most produced scene um, was the sex scene, which, you know, was beautifully shot. It's like, it it's kind actually, of- yeah, it, it actually, it's a really well shot sex scene. It was so not, well not, shot yeah, and so yeah, intimate. It is. It yeah. felt like a complete, that scene felt like a completely different movie to me and um, reading up, on it, that scene was very controversial. Oh, in 1996, yes, yes, I would yeah. imagine. I would imagine it. You know, it, it was, it was, uh, it was checking a lot of boxes, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it covers a lot of issues. Um, even her friend uh, Tamra and kind yes. of how she acts around, you know, white women that come into their lives. Yeah, there were a lot of interesting things going on. I won't say I was a big fan of the film, but. You know, it definitely kept me chuckling and interested throughout. What do you think, Erica? So I'm I'm kind of with John, but I was totally along for the ride with this one. I made a comment to Mike and he kind of looked at me like I was crazy. But some parts of the filmmaking 
looked like something I would have done when I was in college, you know, editing together my, you know, my different projects for my production classes. I mean, it almost had like a high school quality to it with some of those transitions, you know, (laughs) and even like picking, picking the font for, you know, going into, you know, setting the the scene, you know, here we are in Philadelphia. And the font was so like, oh, that's a cute font. I think I'll just use that, you know, as opposed to this is setting a tone. Even fonts, I think, can have an effect in that way. There were some parts that were just so like cheesy like that, that so exaggerated. And you got to wonder who the editor was. However, if that was like, we're talking about the, you know, kind of, lo-fi grainy in comparison to the higher produced pieces then it's like cheryl's a crappy filmmaker in the movie you know she's like not very good she's probably doing well on her research but not necessarily the actual filmmaking component of it i think that criticism is an easy one to have in 2016 but it's important to remember this is in 1996 we're in 2020 right sorry through the 2020 right but i don't think that flip transitions were a thing in 1996 either i could be wrong but i'm not done making my point here real quick You, you have to remember what was available to you at the time and then the other thing to consider is that this is an African-American filmmaker in Philadelphia who I guarantee you was not getting mass amounts of funding. It, there is sometimes the accomplishment is, you know, forging forward despite the obstacles that I am sure that she met and still doing it. It's a good point. It, it comes back to um, maybe some of what we were talking about with Jessica as far as you know, giving new voices access and an opportunity to tell their stories. So this was the first feature film directed by a black lesbian, right? And as you mentioned, Mike, this is the 90s. This is Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt very much like a... And Mike, maybe you and or Jessica know more background on the story or this filmmaker. But to Erica's point, it did feel very much like a student film, for sure. It was. Okay. She was in grad school. Yeah. She was in grad okay. school. Yeah, right. Well, there you go. It 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 feels very indie, no budget. I mean, we've all been there uh, for sure. So yeah, I, I totally get it. I just was going to say, I guess for me, the lesson that I would take, I mean, I agree. Some of the transitions were pretty hokey. The font was a choice, but I liked it. I thought it made sense with the rest of the movie. <laughs> um, but for me, I guess the thing that I want to take from this film as a creator is just do the work, just get it out there. Um, yeah. So Faye Richards is the actress that played the watermelon woman. And uh, we find out that who was the woman that she was living with? Who was her, her partner? June. June. So June says something like, she says Faye didn't want to be remembered for those films. But uh, Cheryl had said that, paraphrasing, but through Faye, it gave her... You know, because Faye was gay and an actress and a black woman, and it gave her a sense of hope and inspiration and history. I thought that was, you know, really a powerful commentary on on her work. Yeah, what did you guys, did you guys think it was successful, you know, the, the end credits within end credits within end credits <laughs> <laughs> of the presentation? I mean... It, it gives it's successful in giving and showing that the lifestyle. And I thought that the story of Faye was pretty decent. I would say the rest I didn't think was as successful. But what do you guys think as far as themes? And I think themes wise, it, it is. I personally, I think it is successful. Now, we can talk about some of the technical stuff where it's just like, I definitely feel like the film loses a little bit of its steam to, uh, around the last 15 minutes of it. I don't know if she had to get it uh, submitted or what, but it's just like, it definitely presses the fast forward button. There's a nice sense of progress in the film. Like when you parallel like the story of Faye and June to Cheryl's life and, and this, and the progress of society and as we've taken like and the way that we look at relationships in a much more open-minded sense there's a nice bookend there now i don't know if it's all realistic 
on some level, but it, there is a tone of uh, ends on a positive coda, if you will. I'm hesitating with what to say because I, I think this is a great film to see and it is free right now to watch on Criterion. So I hate to give away the very, very end of the movie. And so I guess I won't unless anybody <laughs> else brings it up. Um, but just to say that what the movie ends up actually being is so beautiful. And that I think you should say it. I think you should say it. You think it. I can say it? Is 25 years enough of like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, at the end of the film. Wait, it, I haven't seen it yet. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Credits, <laughs> it's revealed that Faye Richards, the watermelon woman, is not real. That this. Yeah. And, and Cheryl comments that sometimes you have to create your own history. And when we're talking about, you know, themes of representation, that makes a lot of sense. And I don't know, the, the ownership of, of past, present, and future that that encompasses then to me is, is incredible. I've never seen a movie like this before, so I was really taken with it. Yeah, agreed. It was definitely original. Erica, were you... To answer your question, John, is I do think it was successful. And considering what I know now, I would say it was extremely ambitious and really, really well done considering it was a grad film, you know, like a grad project. I think maybe it just kind of got in my mind that it was student film like. And Jessica and John, thank you for pointing that out. I mean, A plus. I mean, I just think, uh, you know, hindsight's 2020 i i think her her message would have been stronger if we didn't get like transitions that look like just her learning how to use a camera or dancing like <laughs> a camera. you know like there were just things that it was so disjointed i mean you know maybe you can say she's it all ties into the celebration of you know her life and history and things like that but it did some parts did feel haphazard which prevents me from giving it like a higher a higher rating but you know, <laughs> I digress. I think that's fair though. I mean there's one one transition that really stuck out to me was Cheryl is talking to is it Tamara? Yeah, her friend Tamara. And Tamara's like, "Oh, maybe Diana just likes chocolate." And then Diana walks in and then it's like that scene's over. It's like, "Wait, no, that's the scene." Oh, yeah, they just now. they pulled, they fade the black really quickly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. it's very interesting. I I definitely would recommend that. Um, I think people will get different different things out of it. Although, see, now that I just said that, that I'm like, oh, that's the scene. I want to take that back and say, no, <laughs> I specifically like now that they're like, nope, we don't need to know what the white woman thinks of what she might have heard. It's this like movie's it. not about that. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then uh, Diana. Then they broke up, and there there wasn't much much of that. You know, it was like such a building. I was really getting into the romance, you know. And but I would that's like to have known what happened. Sure, but that's not what the movie's about. I know. Again, the the way that the way that the film handled, you know, it's the way the film decides to handle sexuality on some level. It's just like I, I, it really is. It would even be progressive for now. It doesn't give you the. It doesn't give you the. You know, the beginning, the middle, the end, in sort of that traditional way. And I think that's a that's a unique handle on it. That's true. And and it's also kind of accurate to the way that we think of our lives, right? Like some relationships, you have a steamy moment and then it's just gone. Yeah. It. Yes. Honestly, yeah. It's over. Yeah. Good good points all, for sure. Well, so all right, so do we recommend it? I I feel like it's a tough one for me to recommend to most people. I would I would say it's tough tough for me. We'll need to see it. Jessica's all for it. Mike, Erica? I think if you're a fan of film and the history of film, and particularly, I'm going to say American film, yeah, you got to see it. I think if you, I agree with Mike, and to add on to that, I think if you are a, if you are a young or even an experienced filmmaker who is a lesbian or, or someone who is in a, in a population, especially right now that we're considered underrepresented, watch the movie. I think somebody who is very unlike me would identify with it more so than I could. And I think I can acknowledge that. So I would recommend it. I don't expect anyone to anyone like me to like it that much, <laughs> you know, especially because we are connoisseurs of film here on this podcast. 
most people that we interact with on our daily lives are not. And they're going to look at it through 2020 eyes. And even if you can make something on your iPhone, as Jessica, you pointed out for sure, there is the expectation of quality of content is so different now. So you'd be, I'd be hard pressed to recommend it to like my mother-in-law, <laughs> you know? <laughs> sure. But Mike, very ballsy move on you to recommend a student film. Absolutely. Kudos. No. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Erica, do you want to jump into what did you watch this week? Yeah, well, I'm going to start out by admitting what Mike and I watched this weekend, which at some point we decided we wanted to watch Legends. The old Tom Cruise. Jesse's uh, face is he's losing his mind. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Legend uh, is one of my favorite really movies of all time. No shit. Well, it was certainly one of my favorites of when I was, you know, much younger. And when we discovered that it was streaming, we were like, let's do it. So we watched that. And then afterwards. How did, how did it John, hold up? Really you know, well. I can. I yeah. I was gonna say I can certainly really well. appreciate the 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 you know the. It's not a lot of CGI. It's like puppets and and really good makeup and costuming that that really make it. Um, and the cinematography is gorgeous. I, I, yeah, it was a good recommendation by Erica. Yeah. Nice. Um, and then after that, I slept through the entire movie. Pretty much. I woke up at the end. Mike had put on Heart and Souls. <laughs> you guys have seen that, Robert Downey Jr. Um, that was, you know, a little rom-com there. Uh, good, good. Kira Sedgwick. Um, uh, who else is in that? Elizabeth Tom, Shue. Okay. Tom Sizemore, Robert Downey Jr. Tom Sizemore. Yeah. I don't think I've seen it. On, on Audrey Woodford. Jessica, it's a rom com that I don't know if you'd like. Okay, I mean, I can, I can, go, I can go for rom coms, very dated okay. rom coms, which this sounds like it might be. Those might be. It is. It definitely, it's definitely a dated rom com. Yeah, but it was good. It's pretty good. Um, other posts from uh, Facebook uh, when we put up our note there. Um, Hustle, a BBC series. Anyone catch that? No. Nick Azarek recommended it. Okay. Um, Just Mercy. So that was, of course, um, a recommendation of the, the Film Society. And a lot of folks were talking about it. And Mira Kumar watched that. Mm-hmm. Um, Allison McAtee. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she came in with... Uh, I am not your Negro, uncut gems. Maybe she listens to our podcast and took our recommendation watching Maybe it. Maybe she does. That would be nice. <laughs> Thank you, Allison. And then she watched what I watched last week, the Filthy Rich Jeffrey Epstein uh, limited series, which, again, I will give a wholehearted recommendation for anyone to watch because it it, it will shock you and it gross you out. But we I need to know these people are out there. I don't think I can get there yet. What'd you uh, watch, Jesse, this week? This week, nothing uh, I he's, will... He's not sharing. Okay. I'm not sharing. It was John. Like old, old 90s cartoons and... So lame. Yeah. Can I, make a, can I make a recommendation of something I watched last night? Yep. And just got totally spellbound into? I finally sat down and watched a movie called Columbus from 2017. Oh, that's really good. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I I don't want to say too much, but it's um it, it's a beautiful beautiful film, and if you're looking for something that is just well shot, well acted, and well written, Columbus. Yeah, I've seen that, Mike. That's a good one. He had a very good uh, what would you call it vlog video blog series on YouTube. That filmmaker, and yeah, you can see he appreciates the the craft of filmmaking in in that one. Mm-hmm. You really can. Oh, yeah. It was beautiful. I will say, I did watch The Color Out of Space starring Nicolas Cage. And I wanted to, I really (laughs) wanted to pitch it to the group, but it's not streaming. You have to pay to rent it. And it's got everything you love from Lovecraftian horror to zany Nicolas Cage. He really shines in this one. 
Well, let us know once it's on a on a streamer. I will. I watched uh, one that Erica is going to recommend for next week, surely. And I revisited District 9, which we talked about with Jessica. Um, just last night, I watched Spike Lee's new film, The Five Bloods, on Netflix. And I'm a huge fan of Stephen King's Dark Tower series. So I finally watched The Dark Tower, and it was atrocious. Mm. Yeah, the was other ones were all good. I liked Matthew <laughs> McConaughey. I thought he was pretty good. Oh, he was hamming it up. He was eating. <laughs> he, he was eating it up for sure. Hammy. They're probably just like, "Hey, Matt, go nuts. Whatever you want, <laughs> yeah. you do. You do it. Just do you, man. Just yeah. do you." And he's like, "All right." Je- Jessica, what did you watch this week? <laughs> I've mostly been binging BoJack Horseman. <laughs> nice. Coming up on finishing season five, and it is getting real. Season four, season five of that show, man, intense. I for gotta a cartoon. watch that. I'm not that far. Yeah, I gotta watch it. Erica, what's your pitch for next week? What are we watching? All right. Okay, so my pitch, as John said, um, is Shirley, and it is streaming on Hulu. Um, when I was reading through IMDb to kind of get my background on it, I saw some interesting things. It really grabbed my attention. It's like a horror, I think, uh, drama. It's starring Elizabeth Moss, who I absolutely love. I've loved her since Mad Men. A few months ago, we watched The Invisible Man that she was in, and I loved that. So I thought, this is going to be a good bet. She plays a horror author, um, also starring Michael Stolberg, who we um, watched A Serious Man a few weeks ago. So we're bringing him back as their husband. They have a couple that moves in with them for a time. That's all I really know. Uh, I just know things get a little little strange. Um, Also on IMDb, if you look at plot keywords, you know, I was reading the storyline. It's like, okay, this sounds interesting. And right underneath that is plot keywords. Female to male footsie playing. Female to female footsie playing. Footsie under the table. <laughs> wow, they're really getting into, the, getting into the nitty gritty. <laughs> sounds okay. like a winner to uh-huh. me. Yep. So if you're a fan of footsie playing, uh, this one is for you. Starring Elizabeth Moss. Streaming for free on Hulu. That's a great sales pitch. Thank you. It was the footsie that really did it. I I mean. (laughs) Come on. John, do you want to give us a a little teaser based on the fact that you've seen it? I will not. I will save it for next week. Okay. But you did give it a thumbs up, correct? Yeah, for sure. Big, big thumbs up. Thank you. You're awesome. It's been good uh, learning about you and congrats. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. And Always thanks a pleasure, Jess. I would have never, you know, found that. So thanks. Yeah, no worries. Glad you enjoyed it. Always a pleasure <laughs> to see all of you too. I talked over that. Bye. That's been our episode. Check out the Watermelon Woman on the Criterion channel and let us know what you think in the comments section on Facebook. Next week, our guest will be Dennis Copper from the Sunset Drive-In. Make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain. <laughs>